For our message today, we're back in Mark chapter 8, and we're going to be looking again at the verses 31 through 38. Let's read those now. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is God's word. If you were to ask me what I like to read for leisure, I would say most often history and especially war history. So pardon me for being a history nerd at the moment, but I couldn't help but notice that in less than two weeks, on May 13th, we will observe the 80th anniversary of Winston Churchill's first address to the British Parliament after he became Prime Minister of Great Britain in the year 1940. England had declared war against Germany just eight months earlier after Hitler's invasion of Poland. The war against Germany was not going well, and it was about to get worse. While it seems that many politicians today spin information to try to make situations seem better than they really are, Churchill didn't mince words. He gave it to the House of Commons and the British people straight up saying, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. You know, at a time when people were hoping for encouraging news, that certainly wasn't encouraging. But ultimately, one of the reasons that Churchill was respected and, remired, and admired was that he simply told it like, a, like it was. He was truthful to a fault. He didn't claim, as many wanted him to, to say that the war was going to be over soon. Rather, he said it's going to be long and painful. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind, said Churchill. And then he added, we have before us many, many long months of struggle and suffering. Maybe these words have a familiar prophetic ring to them today. You know, when the Bible describes the whole of the Christian life, it pulls no punches either. While there are plenty of scriptures that provide promises of comfort and hope and peace from God to his people, what we learn from Jesus in today's passage is that living as a Christian can be tough. It involves toil, tears, sweat, and sometimes even blood. It involves suffering. 
Now, most people who have seriously followed Jesus for any length of time find that being a Christian also involves unfathomable joy. But if you're a new Christian, or even if you aren't a Christian, but you're wondering what it is like to be one, then you need to know everything that you're in for. From a literary standpoint, with today's passage, we reach a turning point in Mark's gospel. Everything up to this point has been about helping us see who Jesus is, determining his identity. Now Mark shifts to help us learn more about Jesus' mission. So let's go back and take this a verse at a time, beginning with verse 31 and the first part of verse 32. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. That, my friends, is Jesus' mission in a nutshell. That's what being Christ means. For Jesus, it meant suffering and death. It meant rejection and condemnation by the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Israel. It meant death at the hands of the Romans. It meant blood, toil, tears, and sweat on his part. Thus, this is the gospel succinctly stated. It's good news for us, but it's bad news for Jesus. But he knew this even before he came, and he came anyway. His death was not an accident. It wasn't a miscalculation. It was the focal point of God's plan for him. He must suffer and die. He must embrace death and then be raised to life again. And he said all of this plainly, not cryptically, like he had been teaching previously. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Matt told us last week, hey, it's a bad day for anybody when Jesus calls you Satan. And I agree. But if you think about it, you can imagine what's going on here. Peter takes Jesus by the arm and he leads him away from the other disciples and he says, Jesus, what are you doing? What are you talking about? You're, you're upsetting the guys talking like this. I mean, I know the Pharisees have given you a really hard time. And I know the temple authorities sent those inspectors to come and check you out. What do you mean? What are you doing with this kind of talk? You can't let them kill you. Well, Peter may have tried to have this discussion quietly with Jesus, but Jesus would not let this go. This line of thinking was dangerous to his very mission, and it had to be set right. So he turned his face toward his disciples and rebuked Peter so everyone could hear him. He had heard this force before trying to get him off course in the wilderness when he was tempted directly by Satan. Now he hears this same voice trying to subvert his mission again, speaking through Peter. So he said to Peter, get behind me. Now he didn't mean Peter, get out of my sight. He meant Peter, it's not your place to tell me what to do. 
a few moments ago, you confessed that I am the Christ, and that means your place is to follow me. So get in line, Peter. Get behind me. What you were saying is just human reasoning, but it's not God's program. I've come to lay down my life so that you won't have to be at enmity with God. I've come to defeat even death itself. But to do that, I will have to suffer and die. And this is how your salvation will come. That's what it means to be the Christ. Blood, toil, sweat, and tears. This leads us to our second question. What does it mean to follow the Christ? What does it mean to follow Jesus? For one thing, it means experiencing the joy of knowing that your sins are forgiven and God is not your enemy. You have ready access to and peace with God. It means you learn how to really love people, even those who are different than you, even your enemies. It means putting your trust and your identity in Jesus rather than in what you do or in what you have or don't have, so that when something like the current coronavirus pandemic hits and threatens you, you don't have to be devastated by it. Many people have misunderstood or even misrepresented the Christian life. Some people say that Christianity is only a crutch for weak people who can't deal with life in the real world. For others, it's all about morality, just being a good person, live a respectable life, and in the end you will get your reward. Some people say that being a Christian is about finding self-fulfillment, about unleashing your full potential, and that if you only believe, God will keep you happy and healthy and make you rich. Is this really true? Is this really what it means to follow Jesus? We live in a fallen and suffering world, and you must come to grips with why that is in order to make sense of this world. Suffering touches everybody at some point, whether they're a Christ follower or not. But because Jesus is the Christ, because he is sovereign, he will use even suffering for our own good and our response to suffering can actually give glory to him and be a witness to others, especially in our Western world, which says that suffering must be avoided at all costs. Now, some of you are thinking, now wait a minute, didn't Jesus come to alleviate suffering? Yes, he did. And he calls us to work to end suffering too. I wish we had a lot more time to take a wider look at scriptures today, we would find many, many verses and examples of how God in his sovereignty actually uses suffering to transform us to be like Jesus. Like gold or silver heated and purified in a forge, suffering of any kind can remove our impurities and transform our character to be like Christ's, if we allow it to. Some of you are suffering the recent loss of loved ones, whether to the coronavirus or some other cause. Some are suffering the loss of jobs or the loss of health. We all suffer to one degree or another from the consequences of our own sin and from the sin of others. 
Some of you may be actually suffering for brave or good behavior, for taking a stand and doing what is right. Only others don't like it. And some of you, like perhaps Job, are suffering for no apparent reason at all. This is the seemingly senseless kind of suffering and the most difficult to understand. We need much more time to explore how to respond to these things. The suffering of this world is sobering, but God has promised to be right here with us in our suffering. And so we must not allow things to rob us of the joy of knowing, loving, and following Jesus. Let's look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, please note first that Mark says that Jesus called the crowd as well as his 12 disciples to hear this. This was not just for his 12. It was for everyone who would follow him. What is the kind of self-denial that Jesus is talking about here? Does it mean you deny yourself your favorite food or your favorite recreational activity? Is this self-denial simply about giving up something that you enjoy? No. It's about giving up yourself, writing yourself off. The way we were all born and naturally love to operate is to place ourselves at the center of the universe. We just instinctively think that we are the most important person in the world and everything revolves around us. We tend to worship ourselves and our achievements. But Jesus says, no, my followers don't do that. If you're going to follow me, you are no longer the center of things. I am. And Jesus says, Take up your cross. We sometimes use this phrase today to refer to some burden we have to bear. I'm, I'm fond of teasingly saying to my wife and my adult children and my grandchildren when they ask me to do something, I might as well, I have to do everything. I know it gets really old to them. They're probably going to put that as an epitaph on my grave. He died because he had to do everything. This is not what Jesus meant. Living in Israel under Roman occupation, those who were listening knew exactly what Jesus meant. The cross was the Romans' chosen method of execution. When they sentenced someone to be killed on a cross, they would force the person to pick up the cross, to take it up and carry it to his own execution. This is what Jesus would literally have to do himself. And it is the way that all his followers must be prepared to take. It means that we are prepared to follow our master on the path of suffering. It means that if we are called on, we too will literally be willing to die. Blood, toil, tears, and sweat. There's no detached observers, no spectators, if you're a Christian, this is what you have already committed yourself to. For Christian discipleship is shaped and determined by the cross. Now, does this mean that everyone who is a follower of Jesus will be executed for their faith? No, at least not here. 
But for some people in many countries in this world, it often does mean that. In fact, more people have died a martyr's death for following Jesus in the past century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. In our own culture, it's more likely that you will be mocked for following Jesus. And beyond that, I think I can see the day coming in America when taking a biblical stand on some issue could result in persecution in the form of being fined and or going to jail. When that time comes, let's make sure that we are still loving those who persecute us, for this is the Lord's teaching. Verse 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus is saying here that losing your life, whether literally or in the sense of abandoning your own agenda and following him, actually results in an extremely good deal. If you live for yourself, clinging to your own agenda, you will lose. You may win in this life, but in terms of finding lasting, sustaining peace and joy, in terms of learning how to really love others, in terms even in terms of eternity, you will lose if you selfishly cling to your own life. Many of you are familiar with the quote of a Christian missionary martyr named Jim Elliott. He and his wife went to the Alca Indians of Ecuador mid-20th century, and there Jim was speared to death along with four of his friends as they sought to make friends with the Alcas. Jim had earlier said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You cannot ultimately keep this earthly life. If you attempt to, you will lose it. But if you lay down your life here and now for Christ and for spreading the gospel, you will keep it. It doesn't mean that everyone will go and be a cross-cultural missionary like Jim Elliott, but it does mean that as Christ's followers, we are committed in personal, practical ways to intentionally speak of his work in our own lives with our family and friends and acquaintances and to sacrificially support the work of Christian missionaries. Verse 36 and 37, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? One of the commentators that I read in preparing for this message called verse 35, 36, and 37 a commercial reality, stating that Jesus was borrowing language from the business world to explain that the cost of following him is actually a good deal. In these two verses, Jesus reinforces the message of dying to yourself and saving your soul. You know, even if you could gain the whole world by clinging to your own agenda, by placing your own identity and your desires in what this world can give you, whether that is fortune or fame or everything money can buy, it would do you no good if you gained all that and lost your soul. Some people read these verses and think they refer only to eternal life, to the promise of heaven. Well, it does include that. But it's not limited to that. For as Matt explained last week, the words life and soul in this passage in Greek are both the same word. 
We tend to use the word soul when we're talking about death and dying and eternity. But I think Jesus is also talking about life even here and now. If you could gain fame and fortune in this life and have every personal dream fulfilled on this earth, would it be worth it if it cost you your family, your friendships, your most important relationships along the way? Now, if you think about it, you may even know someone who has done this. Are they fulfilled? Really? And if you think about it, you probably know someone else who has put their identity not in fame or fortune and things, but in serving and helping others because they know and they love Jesus Christ. There is nothing you can earn or do by insisting on living life on your own terms that will really compensate for the fullness that only Jesus gives in this life and the next. Don't you want that? Wouldn't you rather be willing to lose what you cannot keep in order to gain what you cannot lose? And speaking of the next life, let's look at the final verse in this passage. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus' favorite title for himself, the Son of Man, is a reference to both his humanity and his deity. It was common in those times to refer to someone as a son of man, meaning simply a human being. But in the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, the Son of Man is the one to whom God gives authority, glory, and sovereign power. He's the one uh, that people from all nations and every language will bow down to and worship. It is this Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who is returning to earth one day in glory as the judge of all men. He will judge everyone according to whether they have followed him or opposed him. Now, Mark chose to write this verse in the negative. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. But he could declare it, we could declare it positively. Whoever honors me and my words, him or her, the Son of Man will honor. You know, I don't often think about the end times, about eschatology, but this coronavirus thing has me thinking about it again. Is this just a foretaste of the plagues that are mentioned in the book of Revelation? I really don't know. But what is so cryptically and symbolically foretold there? In today's passage, we see will one day give way to something that is made very plain about Jesus Christ. He will return again to judge all mankind. And when he does, there will just be one question. Were you with him or were you against him? If you were with him, you will have experienced blood and toil and tears and sweat to one degree or another in this life. But you won't have to face it in the next. Pray with me, will you?
Lord Jesus, we thank you for dying for us, for conquering death so that we can have life. Your resurrection means that all who die in you will live again. Today, I ask again for an outpouring of your compassion and your strong presence with all who are suffering for whatever reason. I ask your help and protection, especially for our first responders and medical personnel who are working around the clock to alleviate suffering during this pandemic. Help us, your disciples, to grasp the paradox that suffering can make us more like you. Have your way in us, Lord. May each of us learn what it means to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you. And now, Lord, for these offerings that we're about to receive, we thank you. We bless you and ask that you use them to further the work of your kingdom, to help us to alleviate suffering. In your precious name I pray. Amen.